Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the healthcare funding deal uh, hammered out in Ottawa. Let's check in with BC Liberal leader Kevin Falcon now. Very pleased to welcome him. Kevin, thank you for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. You're a, you're a big guest, too, but Commander Riker, I mean, come on. <laughs> I can't compete with Commander Riker. <laughs> I'm a Commander Riker. 11.30, he will be on. Okay, let's talk about the health care deal, because now you've got uh, Premier David Eby in Ottawa again saying that there could be like a separate deal hammered out here on health care funding. We had the, the earlier agreement with all the rest of Canada's premiers here, with uh, $46.2 billion in additional funds on the table over the next 10 years. Now it sounds like maybe there's some additional deals to be hammered out with Ottawa. Let's have a listen to David Eby here with, uh, after his meeting with federal health ministers. Have a listen, they'll get your thoughts. In particular, uh, the strain that our healthcare system is under coming out of the pandemic, the need that people have for family doctors, the concern that they have uh, that uh, urgent care may not be for them, be there for them when they need it or where they need it. and. You know, this is uh, an urgent issue that demands the attention of all levels of government. You think they got enough out of Ottawa here? Could they get more? Uh, no. Uh, actually, it represents about 2% of the health care budget. Um, there's some irony here, Mike, because they criticized me for a deal I signed in 2010 with the federal finance minister that got us 6% a year increase uh, in health transfers right up to 2018. Um, and here they are getting 2%. Uh, let's just put it this way. This isn't the band I would send over to negotiate deals. Um, I'm really concerned about the side deals that they're now going to negotiate. We'll probably somehow end up in a worse situation uh, than a better one. Why would it be a worse situation if we can uh, get a deal to get some extra money? Well, I'm just concerned about, you know, what, like, it's not just, I've always said, believe me, if the health challenges we face today were just about more money, we would have solved them a long time ago. The health challenges we face today, Mike, are because uh, after two terms of NDP government, quite frankly, we've got bureaucracy and administrative costs that have spun out of control. Um, we are getting absolutely worsening outcomes in every measurement in the healthcare system. And not just, like I'm talking just related to the rest of the country and the other provinces, um, we're ranking like right at the very bottom or at the bottom. And so, you know, my concern with the side deals they're going to do is what are they going to give away in terms of our ability to, you know, encourage innovation and flexibility within the system to drive better outcomes? That's what makes me very nervous. When you talk about the bureaucracy in the healthcare system, we've heard a lot about 64 vice presidents in the health authorities all making some big salaries. Didn't you guys have 64 vice presidents? Like, isn't Adrian Dix, the health minister, saying, well, it was 64 vice presidents when I took over? Absolutely not. I remember I used, okay. to, I used to go and have meetings with the health authorities. To, to, you know, I actually went back and checked into the best of what I could see uh, in the five health authorities plus the provincial health services authority, so six. Uh, we had just over, it looked like about 16 vice presidents that were earning over 100000 a year. Um, today we've got 64 that earn up to $600,000 a year. And the, the, the problem is this, 
if we were getting improved and better results, you might argue, okay, well, they're, they're doing a good job. They're hitting good outcomes, and who can argue with good results? But the problem is we're not. We've got total chaos in the system. We've got ERs that are closing across the province. We've got the worst walk-in medical clinic wait times in the country, the absolute worst. Our cancer care wait times are amongst the worst in the country. And you can't even get an ambulance, for God's sakes. When, you know, I've had literally situations where people have called me with examples of uh, an elderly mother with a broken hip waiting hours for an ambulance to arrive. Uh, you know, like it's just the whole system is collapsing all around us. And yet they continue to just keep adding more and more administrative staff. And that's not getting us the results we need. Let's talk a little bit about the chronic offenders. We heard about this on the news. Again, this continues to be a hot topic. We continue to see some attacks in Metro Vancouver for people who have been out on bail or have got long criminal records. Let's have a listen to your critic here in the legislature the other day. This is Surrey MLA Eleanor Sturko. Then I'll get your thoughts. Burnaby, a woman savagely attacked and left seriously injured on the sidewalk in an unprovoked attack. In New Westminster, a vicious random attack with a stun gun sent a victim to hospital. And in Vancouver, an armed criminal who was on bail tried to enter a bar in, on Granville with a firearm. Prolific offenders continue to be put back into the community to hurt innocent victims. What can the province do about this when a lot of this is federal jurisdiction when it comes to bail? Nonsense. A lot of this, the province can do a lot. And let's just remember who was the attorney general for the last five and a half years under the NDP government. It was none other than David Eby. And by the way, I think there's an ideological uh, opposition he has to having proper policing on the streets and keeping people that are dangerous to the public in jail. Um, He wrote the manual, How to Sue the Police, when he was with Pivot Legal Society. I remember him when he was with the BC Civil Liberties, when we were hosting one of the world's greatest Winter Olympics. uh, And he felt the most important thing for his group to do would be follow around anarchists that were trying to smash windows downtown and follow the police around, making sure that they didn't harass these uh, individuals that were, you know, trying to disrupt the Olympics and, and create chaos. So... I don't have, it's no surprise to me that this government's done very little. We've been very clear. Um, He could give clear direction to Crown Council saying that when you've got repeat offenders that are going to be released back into the community, the community safety should take precedence over the right of that individual to be returned. A very clear directive. Didn't they do that? No, they did not do that. What he did is this very bureaucratic thing where he said, well, we're going to change a section of the uh, policy manual for the BC Crown Councils to reflect, uh, you know, please, could we have a slightly greater, you know, emphasis on thinking about community safety? It's resulted in very little change. And by the way, it's, I'm glad that they're now going to Ottawa saying they should toughen up the federal legislation, because I certainly yeah. agree with that. But let's not forget that the former NDP Attorney General was a minister, sorry, excuse me, was an NDP MP in Ottawa, arguing that the legislation they brought in wasn't lenient enough back in the day. So I just think that ideologically, the NDP are never going to um, have what it takes to make sure that our streets are going to be safe. Do you have any confidence that the the federal liberal government will toughen up these bail reforms or rescind them or keep some of these repeat offenders locked up, given they, they seem to have been going in the other direction? And here's, a, here's an example. Let me play a clip here for you. Federal Justice Minister David Lametti asked, he's saying that it could be difficult 
to toughen up these bail reforms. And here's what he has to say, and then I'll get your thoughts. David Lametti here. We have the charter. We have to work within the we have to work within the confines of the charter. Canadians have a charter right to bail. It's a pre-charter right. It's it's a long-standing common law right because you're innocent until proven guilty. Yeah, well, you have a right to bail, but the party leaves out there is unless you're a threat to public safety, right? Then you that's, can be kept locked up, right? Go ahead. Well, that's, that's exactly right. And I think that that is the big issue here is that, you know, the interests of public safety and community safety must always take precedent over the interest of an individual with violent repeat offenses to be released back into the community. It is that yeah. simple. We don't have to overcomplicate this thing. And I'm glad that the federal government is now reviewing that. I hope they move quickly to tighten that up, because I think that combined with, uh, you know, a David Eby and NDP government here in British Columbia that is very, very lax on this whole question has created chaos in our streets that I think uh, we've got to start to deal with. Now, there are other issues. I acknowledge that. That's why we brought out a a sweeping uh, reform proposal in terms of mental health and addictions, uh, how we're going to go in a different direction uh, when we form government here in British Columbia, if we earn the support of the public. But, you know, but clearly it starts with the fundamental principle that community safety must trump the rights of individuals that are violent offenders to be released. So, so you let me just get you specifically on the record about what you think the government should be doing here in terms of a, a directive to Crown Council in British Columbia. When you're faced with a situation, violent repeat offender is in front of a judge again, charged again. You're saying the Crown... What specifically do you want the Crown to do in those cases? So let me give you an example. In the the past, uh, there was um, a challenge with women that were being assaulted, domestic assaults uh, by their partners. Often it was women. I shouldn't say exclusively, but most often women. And a directive was brought in saying that the police were required to charge those individuals regardless of whether the partner wanted to see those charges move forward. That was a directive given to Crown Counsel. Um, so in a like fashion, what we're saying is that a directive be written. We actually drafted one. Our former attorney general, Mike DeYoung, drafted one, provided it to David Eby uh, almost a year ago that would have said the exact same thing, except slightly different. It would have said in the case where I'm paraphrasing in the case where uh, the interests of public safety should take paramount over the interest of a violent repeat offender to be released into society the interest of public safety will take precedence. That's effectively, in a paraphrase way, uh, way what it says. The point is he refused to do it. And instead he's, you know, making minor changes to a, a policy manual that the uh, BC Crown can refer to, and that's just not good enough. And there's a reluctance on the part of David Eby, even as Premier, to actually deal with this thing in a fulsome manner so we can actually have people feeling safe in the streets. I was just in Chinatown the other day, And, you know, just again, once again, we've seen another elderly, this poor elderly individual, you know, pushed to the ground, uh, you know, causing severe harm. And it just breaks my heart that these things keep happening. Yeah. Thank, Thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me, Mike. All right. Here we go with trucks crashing into highway overpasses in the lower mainland. This is getting a little repetitive, isn't it? This time it's a huge dump truck slamming into the Knight Street overpass in Richmond. A lot of people may have seen the unbelievable dash cam footage of this one. The truck driving along with its trailer up in the air. So the truck actually driving in the sort of dumping position. And then, of course, it slams into the overpass. 
this video is amazing because you can just sort of see this disaster waiting to unfold right before your eyes. The thing heads toward this overpass. Low bridge, man. You better better be aware of what's coming up. And of course, it just it slams into it. This keeps happening over and over again. Have a listen to this report from Global News reporter Travis Prasad. Overpass collisions are on the rise. In July, an excavator towed by a dump truck collided with the 192nd Street overpass on Highway 1. Falling cement sent two commuters to the hospital. A big chunk of the concrete had hit my face after it went through the window, so I have pretty extreme amount of dental damage on the right side of my face and facial fractures. Okay, you heard from the victim there, Jade Dallas, who was injured in that particular crash. Let's check in with Paul Doroshenko now, traffic lawyer, Acumen Law. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Paul. Good morning, Mike. Why do you think this keeps happening over and over again? Oh, well, I mean, there's lots of reasons it keeps happening, but each time it's negligence, right? Uh, it's whoever's uh, driving that vehicle is not uh, not taking care to ensure that they're uh, that they can clear that overpass. In the case of this dump truck, obviously the box was elevated. Uh, it's surprising that you can drive one like that. You know that you can get it over five kilometers an hour, uh, but it's just uh, you know it's human carelessness is really what it comes down to, and you know it's a risk to everybody else on the road. Are the truck drivers adequately trained? I don't think it's an issue of training. You know, they're probably well-trained. I think it's an issue of just not being focused on the job at that moment. I mean, we don't know what happened with this with this trailer, right? Uh, maybe it elevated as the driver was driving. You know, you don't know if he took off driving like that or if there was some mechanical flaw that led to it to lift. But think of all the different ways that you could prevent this, right? You could have it so the truck can't be driven more than 10 kilometers an hour with the box lifted. You could have it so there's a big warning light on the dash if if the box lifts, you could also have, you know, certainly it wouldn't be difficult these days, our, our capacity to design some system to warn drivers if they're approaching a bridge and, and their load is too, too large. Like, you know, the government could certainly uh, create some sort, of, some sort of electronic device that could, you know, have a big flashing warning light if this is happening. Uh, you know, there's, wa- there's lots of solutions. <laughs> I also wonder, though, if... There are adequate penalties for this, because if you listen to that that global news report we just played there of the truck crashing into an overpass and then people, you know, a couple people are injured in that one. We heard from one of the crash victims there. In that particular case, the driver here got two tickets, driving without due care and attention, $368, and driving with an insecure load, $288. That doesn't sound like a very severe... Fine. Let me play the Transportation Minister, Rob Fleming, for you on this point, Paul, and then I'll get your thoughts. Here's Rob Fleming. The penalties are quite low, so I've asked staff to look at that and to talk to the trucking industry about whether there's something we can do here uh, in, in regards to fines and penalties. What do you think of that? Well, that's an interesting point. Um, you know, tickets have been consistent. The number of tickets that have been issued in B.C. have been pretty consistent over the years, even through the pandemic. Uh, which surprises many people. But the number of people disputing the tickets has dropped quite a bit. And I think one of the reasons is our fines are considered very low overall. Like, we haven't had any change to the fines, for the most part, in B.C. in 20 years. So, you know, inflation, everything else has gone up. But fines for many offenses in the Motor Vehicle Act, it's the same, you know, it's the same amount of money it was 15 years ago. 
So it's not uh, it's not a big deterrent, I suppose, $368. But a driving without due care and attention is a pretty serious one. Of course, it triggers driver point premium uh, because it's six points. It's a you know it's a heavy ticket. Let's talk about people driving around in fake cop cars. I find this interesting too. Talk about a, a brazen offense impersonating a police officer. People might remember that case in North Vancouver last year, where police said someone was pulling pulled over a driver and demanded money and a fraudulent traffic stop, impersonating a police officer. And then we have this case now in Saanich on Vancouver Island, where police arrested an allegedly impaired driver, saying that he was also driving a, a police vehicle that with police, what it looked like police lights on it. Here is Constable Marcus Anastiades from the Saanich Police Department. I'll get your thoughts. The focus of this vehicle really were the, the flashing lights. And at nighttime, from behind in the rearview mirror, it for all accounts, it looks like a police car. It's shocking, completely shocking, uh, that someone would put a child's life in, in this kind of danger, driving at high speed, driving erratically, driving while impaired, and operating a vehicle appearing to be a police officer. Yeah, there was a, a, a child in the car as well, so that guy's in you know, a lot of trouble here. So, you know, and when you took a look at the uh, the video of that one, the, the, the lights that were installed in this vehicle, the flashing lights, really looked like a police vehicle. Yeah, I mean, this guy had, had gone the extra mile, right, and looks like he'd wired them in. You know, you can go out to Amazon and you can buy uh, police, what looks like police lights that plug into your lighter, uh, red and blue flashing lights. But that guy had actually wired it in the side. Uh, didn't look like a police vehicle at all. It was like a 20, 30-year-old Chrysler. Uh, but, uh, yeah, one wonders what people are thinking. Uh, <laughs> a level of stupidity that's, uh, that's rarely seen. How, how serious a charge is that impersonating a police officer? Oh, it's serious. I mean, you can get yeah. jail for it. Uh, it's one of those things that um, undermines confidence in the uh, in the police. You don't know whether or not it's a police officer or not. When you're driving down the road, you see flashing lights behind you. Uh, you know, is, is it safe to pull over? Are, are you confident that that's a police officer behind you who's trying to pull you over? I mean, we've had there's always various incidents and you can look at this, this is a chronic problem around North America. It is not uh, difficult to uh, uh, pass yourself off as a police officer just by putting flashing lights in your car. And of course, you know, you're facing a serious criminal charge and, and likely, a, you know, even a first time out, probably a jail sentence. Let's talk about this uh, statement out from the Abbotsford Police Department, Paul. Last evening, police officers observed two motorcycles driving more than 200 kilometers an hour in an 80-kilometer zone on Highway 11, weaving in and out of traffic. The riders were stopped, bikes were seized, numerous violations issued. 200 kilometers an hour on two motorcycles. Your thoughts? Well, motorcycles in February yet. Like, you know, yeah. the rest of the country would be looking at it thinking this is insane. And it is insane, uh, those speeds on, uh, on city streets. Um, you know, the uh, it just feels like there's so many uh, so many driving law news stories out there, and that's because we see these circumstances. And I think largely that is motivated. A lot of these guys on their motorcycles like to post videos uh, in discussions on uh, in the internet, um, and that seems to be yeah. one of the things. And the other thing is, you know, they're inspired by other people doing it. So when they see it and they see other guys getting away with it, they think to themselves, "Well, I'm going to go out there and." And do this, of course, you know, if you're on a motorcycle and you drive like that, you can end up being smashed like a bull eggs. Like, you know, it's a, uh, it, it, it's just so fundamentally dangerous. Here the Abbotsford police have been 
posting that they've got uh, excessive speeders basically every day for the last five days. Uh, each one seems to be worse than the last, which makes you wonder whether or not there's much of a deterrent effect uh, of uh, police enforcement. But, you know, we've seen a decline in enforcement uh, in the last little while as a result of basically labor shortage in the police departments. Okay, take just before we take a break, let me get your, your take on your thoughts on a, a story we covered last week, and that is this idea that's been pitched by a, a city councillor on Vancouver Island to allow municipalities to set up traffic cameras. So right now we have intersection speed cameras, which is effectively photo radar, and we also have red light cameras. So if you run a red light or you speed through an intersection where these cameras are installed, these cameras can take a picture of your your driver's your license on your vehicle plate, and you can get a ticket. This this councillor says, let's let municipalities set up these cameras too, so we can more effectively police dangerous roads and intersections in our communities. What do you think of that idea? Well, there's a lot to it. Uh, I don't know that this uh, councillor is aware that the NDP basically lost an election on this, and that's how Gordon Campbell became the premier. Um, photo radar is something that is a very touchy issue in this province. Right now, the provincial government has taken a pretty cautious approach, thoughtful approach. Uh, they look at the intersections where they can see that there's been accidents, serious accidents, where it's repeated, uh, and they and they deal with it. Now, this city councillor wants to create another level of bureaucracy where another level of government has control over this. It's not necessary because we've already got it. All they have to do is write to the government, to to the superintendent of motor vehicles or the solicitor general, and say, this is an intersection of concern. Yeah. Can you investigate it? We would like to see whether or not it's appropriate to have uh, some speed control here. And that's all they have to do. Why, you know, create a new authority so we can have multiple layers of government doing this? You know, it's uh, it's just funny how people think. Uh, well, the other, the other thing... Necessary. The other thing I, I worry about is would it turn into a, a cash cow? If you were to give municipalities the authority to set up these cameras, do these cameras start popping up everywhere, just turn into revenue generators for local government? Well, that is a problem we've seen in many other jurisdictions, and it's a huge problem in some areas of the U.S. where there's very little you know, public, very little scrutiny by the higher level of government, right? You give yeah. the authority to the local sheriff, and they get to collect from the... Uh, uh, from the the, the uh, fines that are paid, and next thing you know, everybody who drives through town is getting pulled over and cited for something. Um, so, you know, I I just think it's fundamentally inappropriate. We've already got okay. the provincial government dealing with it. Okay, we're talking traffic with Paul Doroshenko. Lots of calls. Paul in the Naimo. Hi, Paul. Go ahead. Hey, Paul. Go ahead. Oh, Mark. Okay, sorry, my bad, Mark. I just want to say this thing on the dump trucks hitting stuff like that. Yeah, there's that's just total ignorance. That's distracted driving. I drive dump truck for over twenty years, and hey, if I was going down the road and my box was up, I would know. I have lights to come on. Uh, you have to engage a pump and a lever to make the box go up. I know two guys that have done this, and both times they'll admit they were distracted on the phone. So is it possible? Is it doing this? Is it possible? What? Is it possible for the dump truck bed or whatever to go up the box? Okay. Is it possible for the box to go up in the air while you're driving? And you don't know. No, you have to. You have to <laughs> push a lever, and your PTO pump has to be engaged. 
So okay. that's two things you have to do to make it go up. So right. for them not to know what's up, that's that's just total, you know, they're, they're inexperienced or they're just so not paying if, attention. So this probably would be a case of a guy gets behind the wheel with the dump the dump bed still up in the air and didn't for, just forgot to put it down? Uh, the, the, the end dump that hit the bridge? Yeah. Those things fall over just by hitting a rock in a dump site. They're so tippy when they're up in the air like that. Really? For him to not know that is just like inexperienced. Or, or distracted on the phone, texting, who knows. But, you know, I, I, if I, if my box is up in the air, my cab is so much brighter because the window is exposed. When the box yeah. is down, I, it, it makes it look dark in my cab. And you feel okay. it. You feel it waggle back and forth because they're, yeah. they're, not, they're not made to go down the highway up. It's just no. bad drivers. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. It's good to hear from a dump truck driver, get the professional point of view. Lots of calls here. Gordon in Vancouver. Gordon, go ahead. Hi, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. You have a fabulous yeah. show all the time. Thank hey, um, yeah, red light cameras or camera sections, I see them all the time. I'm a sales rep. I drive all over the place all day long. But the, the thing is, is that people have driver's licenses now in trucks, and I say big rigs and dump trucks, and they like to drive in the fast lane on highways. You've got so many other rage things happening on the on the streets now. People do UEs in the middle of the front of you. People go the worst thing that happens is all the time is people like to change lanes in the middle of an intersection. And I got hit this morning on Highway 1, and oh. I was stopped. Oh, yeah. it was. It, yeah, we're dead stopped on Highway 1 this morning at uh, 176 there because of a altercation on the highway on the other side. And I got hit this morning, and I was dead stopped. So the guy behind me says, I'm so sorry. I wasn't paying attention. He was on his phone, he said. He was, he was texting. Oh, at, at he said days. that to you? Oh yeah, he was he was an honest gentleman. He was about my oh. age, so we we're about you know both the same age. So it was like they looked. I looked at the guy. I went, "Really?" He goes, "Yeah." I went, "Oh my gosh, buddy!" But oh, man. so many people text. You wouldn't believe, man, Mike, how many truck drivers are texting while they're driving. You can actually see their phones up on did their you, uh, while they're texting. Did you call the police? No, the pl- no, no. no. It, it was no. I have to get somewhere. I have to be at UBC by ten o'clock, and I'm already. I'm probably twenty minutes late. So okay. No, it's it's just anyway. No, I didn't okay. call. Please. Th- thank you for the call, Paul. What do you think of that? Well, uh, <laughs> I, we could have a whole show on U-turns, okay? Yeah. Because I, I don't even know what is a lawful U-turn. And most police officers I talk to, we can identify circumstances where it's unlawful, but there's a lot of gray areas there. If it's unsafe, you're not supposed to do it. Uh, texting and driving, it's chronic. I'm looking out my window right now. I can see at least one person who's oh. on their phone. Um, you know, I don't know why the police don't use some of these SUVs they've got and put some cameras in them and just do some enforcement that way on cell phone offenses because man it is the full range of people like you'll see people in their 70s using their Mm. phones and you know actually less often it seems to see people in their like uh early 20s but uh lots of people of middle age persuade themselves they're safe squeeze in one more malcolm in north van malcolm you got 30 seconds yeah, Paul, there, are technolo- there is technology across North America for overheight. We even got it here on the Trans-Canada because remember when the, the uh, Glover overpass got smoked uh, a couple of years ago, he, by, he, didn't, he did not pay attention to the warning sign. So they have flashing signs. They have the technology. It's the will to put it in, the money. Th- thank you, Malcolm. we got 20 seconds here. Paul, go ahead. Well, it's getting cheaper and cheaper to put that stuff in, and you look at the cost of the damage, uh, it's something, again, it is purely a negligence issue, right? It's the driver's not paying attention, uh, but you look at the cost to fix it, 
versus the cost of putting that uh, that technology in. Uh, I think it's getting to the point where it's probably cheaper to start putting it in. Paul, thank you for coming on today. Yep, my pleasure. Okay, here we go with the price of your beer set to spike on April 1st. Yes, beer taxes are going up again. Now, this is the controversial escalator tax. The tax goes up every single year, pegged to inflation. So with inflation running high, hang on to your wallets here. You're going to be faced with a large beer tax hike on April 1st, Canada's brewers not lying down on this one. They're fighting back against this beer tax hike. Have a listen to this ad here. Now, these ads, you'll hear a lot of these ads. They're very, they're quite funny ads here. And you're going to hear the famous Canadian duo Bob and Doug McKenzie here featured in these ads from Beer Canada. Have a listen to this one. On April the 1st, Ottawa plans to raise the tax on beer by another 6%. What do Canadians think? We don't like it, eh? Good day. I'm Bob McKenzie. This is my brother, Doug. How's it going, eh? Okay, everything else in Canada is frozen, eh? Freeze the beer tax, too. Come on, MPs. You're elected to serve, so serve the beer. And hold the tax, eh? A message from Beer Canada. Stop the hike. Visit hereforbeer.ca. We approve this message, eh? Well, I don't approve of you. Take off. Okay, let's check in with CJ Healy now, president of Beer Canada. Pleased to welcome him back. CJ, thank you for coming on. Hi, Mike. Great to talk to you again. Okay, we're not going to charge you for that ad. That's a, a free one that we'll play for you today. These ads are quite funny. So the first thing that comes to mind when I hear these ads is, are, are that is that really Bob and Doug McKenzie? Like, are those the actors Rick Moranis and, and Dave Thomas? These are real guys? They, cer- they certainly are. Wow. Uh, and as you know, they've been very protective of the characters that they created so many years ago, and they sort of put it in hibernation for a while. Uh, so we are really excited about having them come out in support um, Beer Canada and being here for beer. Wow, that's uh, that's some big star power you got here in this ad campaign. Was that difficult uh, deal to to negotiate with them? Well, as you know, Mike, we've been fighting the April first impending tax increase uh, since really last spring, and things just got worse and worse over the year uh, with inflation, interest rates, cost of living. Everybody was feeling pinched, and we said, like, how are we going to push this over the top? In the perfect world, who would speak to Canadian beer consumers? And, you know, as improbable as it sounds, we said, well, what about Bob and Doug McKenzie? Um, <laughs> so we, <laughs> we reached out to them and they were very reluctant at first. I said, like, we are so picky about the causes we take on. Uh, so we told them our story and then they said, oh, my God, can we help? Well, how can we help? Can we write some ads? Can we appear with you guys? Uh, so it was an easy sell once they heard our wow. story. Okay, they were into it here. They really wanted to do this. Let's listen to another one here, because I find these ads quite funny. So here's another of the Bob and Doug ads here. Let's have a listen. On April the 1st, Ottawa plans to raise the tax on beer by another 6%. What do Canadians think? Whoever came up with this idea gets no back bacon, eh? Good day. I'm Bob McKenzie. This is my brother, Doug. How's it going, eh? Why don't you tax some other stuff, eh? Like yams, confetti, or liver, eh? I hate liver. Leave beer alone, eh? A message from Beer Canada. Stop the hike. Visit hereforbeer.ca. Take a hike, Ottawa. We drink responsibly. So tax responsibly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I mean, those are uh, memorable ads for sure. These guys are, uh, you're talking to A-listers here. You get the star power out in these ads. That must have set you guys back. It must be an expensive campaign. 
Uh, not really. Um, oh. They worked for scale. Oh, yeah? <laughs> they did. Really? <laughs> and our agency said the same thing. Really? And yeah. absolutely. Uh, they just really uh, were so invested in this uh, cause, if you, if you will, uh, and that they just thought the Bob and Doug McKenzie would just, uh, you know, uh, add a great voice to the campaign and so they were all in so like just wow kudos to them <laughs> oh that's very interesting so they are both you know they, they both think the taxes are too high personally like they believe in the cause that taxes are excessive on beer well uh, just to be clear we're not asking for a tax break right we're not asking for yeah. a tax cut we're just saying taxes are high enough already uh 50 of the price of beer you're paying are taxes the highest in the g7 wow. and bob and doug says that's enough let's freeze it there for a while posers Okay. Okay. So, so let's talk a little bit about these taxes here now. So, did you say fifty percent? So, when you buy beer, like half of the, half of your what you're paying is tax. Incredible as it sounds, Mike. That's exactly right. Yeah. Wow. And is that all levels of taxation, or is that federal, provincial, everything? So that's federal and provincial. That's correct. Right. So right. So, wow. And that's the highest in the G seven. That's right, right. Which is not like we love being first in a lot of things. Being the first in beer taxes is not so great. Right. Okay. And how much are the beer taxes going up on April 1st? Well, we hope zero, given that Bob and mm. Doug are asking for that. But otherwise, it's going to be 6.3% on April 1st. Right. And is that because of the inflation rate? Because that's the way this works, right? This is an automatic tax hike index to inflation, correct? Exactly right. And so that's why it's time to put a stop to it, right? When we were in the 1% to 2% uh, inflation environment, and that's what Finance Canada thought we'd be in forever. It was sort of a pain, uh, but it was uh, digestible, if you will. Now that inflation is in at levels we haven't seen in decades, uh, everybody recognizes that's crazy. That wasn't the policy intent. Uh, everybody's feeling the pinch. Let's keep beer affordable and just freeze taxes for a while. Okay, and this is what they call an escalator tax. So it goes up, it goes up automatically. It doesn't require. An act of parliament, it doesn't require the law to be changed, so so the politicians don't have to go into the, legis- the House of Commons and put in a beer tax act in front, of, in front of the parliaments, in front of parliament, right? It goes up automatically. That's right, and yeah. lots of people think that's just not the way the Canadian government should work, that's not the way the can- Canadian electorate thinks it works. Uh, yeah. It's kind of a sneaky behind-the-scenes, uh, backdoor kind of way to uh, reach into your pocket. Yeah, because I guess it allows the politicians to kind of increase taxes without, you know, standing up and taking accountability for it in the House of Commons. That's right. There's not a minister of finance in Canada that would stand up today, given the circumstances, talking to anybody trying to, you know, fill up their um, car with gasoline, fill up their grocery cart with food, would say, oh, I have a brilliant idea. Let's raise beer taxes by 6.3%, right? Nobody would do that. So if the effect is the same by doing nothing and sitting on your hands, well, that's what you're doing, and shame on you if you allow that to happen. And this this tax also applies to other forms of alcohol, right? So wine and spirits as well, is that correct? That's exactly right. So it's not just beer, it's beer, wine, spirits, and whatever else your favorite alcoholic beverage is. And are your colleagues in those sectors also upset about, they also asking for a freeze? They absolutely are. They just weren't as lucky enough to talk to Bob and Doug. Yeah, right. Right. Okay. So, how how you know effective do you anticipate this this could be? I mean, obviously, it's an eye catching campaign, and it'll it could get some attention. Have you talked to Have you talked to the finance minister about this? Like, what is the government telling you? 
So we actually had what we call a lobby day yesterday in Ottawa. So we did the rounds. We went and knocked on everybody's doors, and nobody was opposed to what we were asking for, which is a freeze. So oh. I'm feeling really optimistic, and I think this campaign should just raise the um, understanding and the noise level, right, to a point where people are just going to say, okay, Beer Canada, we hear you. Uh, let's freeze beer taxes. We're all agreed. So when you say everyone... Everyone you talked to was ag- agreeing with you. Are you talking about liberal MPs you spoke to as well? That's correct. It's okay. liberals, all parties, um, you know, uh, all different uh, ministries. Um, obviously, the liberal party MPs, you know, have to be a little bit more cautious in their public comments. But yeah. privately, they are pushing for a freeze as well, or many okay. of them are anyways. We're going to follow it closely. Thank you for coming on. Mike, I really appreciate the airtime. All right, welcome back to the show. Here we go now with Commander Riker himself, actor and director Jonathan Frakes. Of course, he portrayed Commander William Riker in Star Trek The Next Generation. Back in action once again in the newest season of Star Trek Picard. And I'm very pleased to welcome him. Jonathan, thank you for coming on today. Mike Smith, it's always good to hear that song. (laughs) <laughs> it's one of my favorites. I'm a big fan, so I'm thrilled to have you here. And Jonathan will be at the Fan Expo in Vancouver coming up this weekend at the Vancouver Convention Center. Have you spent a lot of time in Vancouver over the years? Oh, man. I used to live at the Sutton. <laughs> oh, yeah? <laughs> no, I did a lot of shows up there. Uh, ever, it's my favorite. You ever record it? You ever do any TV shows or movies or direct up here at all or just come in for the conventions? Oh, no, I, I shoot up there. I did Falling Skies. I used to do The Astronauts up there. I did, um, I've done, a, you know, I go back 30 years shooting, and that's why I said I always stay at the Sutton with all the rest of, and you see people in L.A., or you see people at the Sutton you haven't seen in 20 years in L.A. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. I know a lot of fans here in Vancouver are looking forward to seeing you this weekend. And we've got Star Trek Picard, the final season, about to launch here. Before I ask you about that, Jonathan, let me let me ask you. I'm curious about this. Let's go all the way back here to the very beginning of your, your Star Trek journey here. How did you get the role of Commander William Riker to begin with? I actually had to audition seven times to get that friggin' role. Wow. Over over six weeks. Because Star Trek, The Next Generation, was the first scripted, let me get this right, the first scripted drama made directly for syndication. Right. So the show was sold to 237 separate television stations. So there were all kinds of middle management executives who needed to sign off on who was in the cast. So I auditioned for the casting director, then I auditioned for the producer, then I auditioned to the directors, and then... Then there was a whole series of other auditions all the way up the pecking order at Paramount until I finally got the job. Actually, I was down in the final, too, with a wonderful uh, son of Vancouver, Billy Campbell. Oh, Wow, how about that? And were you a Star Trek fan before you auditioned for the role? Not nearly the fan I became. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about the, you know, it's been so long since uh, Next Generation ended its run, that glorious run of TV in 1994. Here you've got the band back together here. It's been, yeah. what, 20, how long since the, the last film as well from Star Trek? At least 20 years. Yeah, it was 2002 was Star Trek Nemesis. 
which I thought was yeah. a good movie, by the way. I think it gets a bit of a bad rap. Nemesis. I thought it was okay. It, it was a good. It was a good movie, but it took a shit at the box office. At the box office. It did. did, Yes, it really did. I thought unwarranted. I thought it was pretty good. Did you think at that time, now when that movie wrapped 20 years ago and you guys were packing up for the, the the next generation cast, did you ever think that you guys would get back together again? We didn't dare hope. We were a pretty tight group and, uh, there was a certain sadness when, um, when they pulled the plug on us. So this has been a gift coming back to do season three of Picard. Yeah. What's it been like to, to work with the, all your friends on the, in the cast there? You guys seem like you just mentioned as a tight group. You all seem very friendly. I, I often think about, you know, when I think back to uh, William Shatner, there was some bad blood in the, some of the characters on the original series, but yeah. you guys seem all pals. Well, not only we all, we're all pals, we've all stayed in touch for the next 20 years. So it wasn't, it wasn't strange or for the last 20 years, it wasn't so strange to get, together because we've seen each other we always have dinner and lunches and drinks and and we always we a lot of us do these cons together yeah i also have been directing uh on picard for three seasons so i did six episodes of that so i was with patrick a lot on the floor so and it's a um you know we stood up at each other's weddings and gone through these divorces and godparents to each other's kids so it is a very we're thick as thieves you should see the text message the group text <laughs> <laughs> I would love to actually. Speaking to Jonathan Frakes, Commander William Riker from Star Trek Picard. What can fans expect here in the in the final season of Picard? Very good question. It's a it's a Butch and Sundance action adventure. Oh, a great villain! And there's a there's a lot a lot more conflict within the cast family, not the cast, the uh, the characters. Yeah. In the original show, the premise, because of Gene Roddenberry, our wonderful creator, was that there was always harmony on the bridge of uh, of the Enterprise. In this version, characters have grown up and they've grown away, and they've some have left Starfleet, and so there's um, you know, there's there's conflict, which makes for good drama, which makes and we've got a great villain, and we've got added a couple of wonderful new characters. It's um, I'm really, frankly, very thrilled with how the whole season has come out. Well, it's been awesome to see you all together again. Do you think there's any possibility that the Next Generation team would return in another TV series, or do you think this is the the final bow here? Well, I think I think we'd be crazy not to if we could. <laughs> it, I don't. I don't see anybody. Nobody's dead. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And and Data's died three times already, so. Clearly, that doesn't matter. Right, sure. He keeps coming back. Absolutely. <laughs> what was it like to get, was it difficult to get back into the swing of, of portraying Commander Riker again after so many years on this series? Well, I had a little bit of a head start because I had done a couple of episodes in season one of Picard. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I had um, tried him back on as an older guy, and I was surrounded by my, my trusted television wife, Marina Surtees, who plays Counselor Troy, and of course, or Patrick, so we it was um, it wasn't as strange as it was when I did season one. I will say where I hadn't acted in years, and they oh. both I had just directed Patrick, so he was on fire. Marina had just closed starring in a play in the West End in London, so she was on fire. I thought, oh my god, I got to get buried by my acting friends. It's going to drive me crazy. So I overprepared, and it worked out fine. 
What's it been like working with Patrick Stewart again on screen as an as an actor on stage? You guys had such great rapport in uh, the seven seasons of Next Generation. Now here you are together again in Picard. What's that been like? Well, there was something about looking into his eyes in these scenes again. Even though the characters are now, we disagree on a number of things, very specific and uh, kind of heavy subjects that the two of the two characters have opposing points of view on. So to get into a scene, and when you're working with Picard, you're working with Patrick, you know? I mean, those two men have really become fluid. So when I'm Riker, who is a little different than Frakes, I look into Patrick's or Picard's eyes and I feel that I'm in really, I'm in a very safe place to work and, and a very inspired place to work. And it's a privilege to work with one of the world's greatest actors, obviously. Mm. That doesn't hurt. It's like the, the uh, metaphor about tennis, you know? You play with somebody better than you and I think your game gets better. Hey, Jonathan, you mentioned that, you know, you'd been more doing more directing than acting in, in recent years, and you've directed two episodes of the new season of, of Picard. Would you say that directing Star Trek ha, has has changed a lot over the years? Absolutely. Hmm. Without a doubt. When we did our show, in, we started in 87, and right. it could not have been more traditional. A master shot, a little bit of coverage, some two shots, some singles. And then they go outside for the visual effects and the ships move around. But we, we didn't move the camera a lot. We didn't try to, we didn't do nearly the kind of cinematic storytelling that has been encouraged actually since JJ took over the franchise and did his movies, which were spectacular and big and bold and full of lens flares and camera movement and crane movement. So on the new shows, which I'm lucky enough to do on um, discovery and uh, strange new worlds and Picard, Alex Kurtzman and Akiva Goldsman and Terry Metalis and all the guys who run these shows, Kunde, yeah. Chris Fisher, you're encouraged to shoot to thrill, as my friend Robbie McNeil often says. So you're, in, you're encouraged to be as filmic and cinematic as you can to help tell the story with the camera, which has been great as a director. I mean, you need to get your close-up so that the producers can, you know, get their version of the story if they don't feel that you've captured it properly in, in your shots and your masters. But... It has been, first of all, they give you more time and they give you more money and they give you all the toys and all the tools you need. It's wonderful to see you back on the screen and directing some of these episodes. Uh, you've got, Jonathan, you have a ton of fans here and uh, looking forward to, all your fans are looking forward to seeing you in Vancouver once again this weekend. Thank you very much for coming on today. All right. Good luck with the final season of Picard. Thank you, Mike. A pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada.
Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.